this week on Thinking Biblically, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. So if you want to know what the mark of the beast is, stay tuned. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. And before I introduce this week's guest, I want to remind everyone to subscribe and share and comment and review. That really helps in getting the word out about the podcast. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Paul Spilsbury. Uh, Paul's originally from South Africa. He came to Canada when he was 18 years old uh, to attend a, a Prairie Bible Institute. Uh, he, since 2015, he's been professor of New Testament and academic dean at Regent College in Vancouver, where he himself graduated in 1990. He went on to earn a PhD in early Christian and Jewish history and literature from the University of Cambridge. After completing his doctoral work, Paul joined the faculty of, of Canadian Bible College in Regina as professor of New Testament and was an integral part of the early formation and development of Ambrose University in Calgary. Paul's teaching and research his re, Paul's teaching and research interests include New Testament studies, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, and Christian thinkers from the first few Christian centuries. He's authored two books. This first one is of particular interest to me personally. It's called The Image of the Jew in Flavius Josephus' Paraphrase of the Bible. I don't know what kind of reflection that is on myself, but probably not that much since I was born much later after that. And of special interest, another book of special interest to our discussion today is this one. It's called The, Th the Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon, and it's a reader's guide to the book of Revelation. And as I said, that's what we're going to be looking at, at today. Uh, Paul's also published numerous book chapters, articles, and reviews, and has traveled extensively th throughout the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern countries associated with the ancient church. And as we did a little bit of get to know you before we started, I discovered that Paul's also an artist. And um, I don't know if we'll get to talk about that today, but there's often more to people than meets the eye. Paul is married to Bronwyn, and they have two sons, Elliot and Oliver. Welcome to Thinking Biblically, Paul. Thanks so much, Alan. It's great to be with you. Um, does your art reflect your, like, is there a connection between your art and your theology, or is this just a separate hobby altogether? No, I would say it's integrated. Um, you know, it's maybe just a recognition of the place of art in one's life. I've always been a a drawer and and more recently maybe the last 20 years or more a painter as well so i'm not sure if i can articulate very specifically what the connection is but perhaps it's a way of looking at the world appreciation of beauty place of form and color and line and all of those things they have a bearing on how we look at things i think so i wouldn't want to divide them out from each other but i haven't really done a, a deep dive on that specific point well do you think your art your may I call your love of art and your artistic perspective affects how you look at the Bible in particular at the book of Revelation? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things that I learned early on in my study of Revelation, for example, is that we encounter or we engage the book in more than one way. So on the one hand, you can think of it analytically, you can do exegesis on the kind of the level of what do words mean and what's the historical context and so on. But then there's another whole kind of aspect of engagement that has to do with engaging the imagination. And, you know, John has written us something that is clearly crafted. It's beautifully arranged. There's poetical elements. You could think of the whole of scripture like this. You have the Psalms. It's got metaphors, symbolic language. You've got, um, you know, it's an invitation to engage with, um, with a, a more kind of emotive sense of things. So, you know, when, you feel certain things. Say you're reading about, you know, um, locusts that are frightening and so on. That the emotion that is engaged is is kind of an artistically created emotion. So art um, calls us to a kind of a different kind of experience, a different kind of engagement. So I think yes, I um, 
I like to engage the book of Revelation as other parts of the Bible um, imaginatively, but not a, not a kind of a, a free-for-all imagination, but one that's rooted in, in exegesis, rooted in a, 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 an attempt to appreciate what the author was trying to do, what their circumstances were, um, what we know about the world that they lived in, and all of those kinds of things. Um, but then also to be as fully orbed as possible in our understanding and our application of it. Sometimes if the book of Revelation, for example, just just pausing and reflecting on the beauty of the one who sits on the throne is as important of a learning from Revelation as anything else. In fact, maybe it's the most important thing is if you read chapter four and five and and just dwell on the, this figure, this one who sits on the throne is surrounded by perpetual worship. Worship itself is an artistic expression. If there's song, if there's some kind of liturgical structure to what they're doing, um, just to um, sit in that kind of a place and allow that to shape who we are, shape our sensibilities, our, our way of engaging with the world, uh, we will have already got the biggest thing that Revelation is offering us or is calling us to, to worship the one who sits on the throne. Yeah, well, I guess to, to jump right into to some of these details, um, you mentioned chapters four and five, and um, I have the impression that for some, that's all they really focus on in a book like Revelation. There's a, we can do a, a relatively easy sermon series on chapters two and three because of the nice little vignettes mm -hmm. of the letters to the seven churches. And you could almost get like these spiritual morals out of out of those because uh you know this church had this problem and so yeah. oh we better not we don't want our love to grow cold and and strengthen mm -hmm. the things that remain and some of some of those yeah. nice little lessons in those in those seven letters then you get to four and five and you have this glorious vision of the mm -hmm. throne and hymns and songs mm -hmm. uh, old and new have been written based on those chapters yeah absolutely and then well after that for some people, well, let's just go back to the uh, book of Genesis because we don't want to get into the uh, the monsters and uh, and uh, the trumpets and the bowls and all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And then you you have the the other group that is so into the the more those graphical elements and want to decode it. Mm -hmm. And whether or not they take seriously the first five chapters or not, that's besides the point. But it's it's almost like they're very different writings mm -hmm. rather than a whole. And it does seem, would you agree, Revelation is actually one big letter mm -hmm. that was being sent to these seven churches in its first context, and that people were meant to read the whole thing as a whole. And for the first, just to let you know, for the first time, last night in getting ready for today, I read the book of Revelation all the way through chapters one through 22 to get that big picture sense. And it is, it is an experience to do mm -hmm. that. I don't know. I really recommend it to everyone. Mm -hmm. It's really good to do that with a lot of the books of the Bible, if not all of them. Uh, but you, you, you get drawn in in a different way than when yeah. we do this chapter or a bunch of verses mm -hmm. at a time. Anyway, can you, can you, I'm thinking of different things. So let, let's stick with this one. Is the book of Revelation, should it be taken as a whole? Should we mm -hmm. be careful not to chop it up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a really good insight, and it really applies to all of Scripture, but especially a book like Revelation. I mean, scholarship over the years has wondered whether it, uh, you know, the book came together over a long period of time, whether maybe different parts of it started off as separate and then have been cobbled together in a kind of later editorial process. It's one of the questions scholars engage with. And there is this clear sense of a, a kind of a beginning, and then um, and and then it goes into the kind of the main body. So there do, there does seem to be you know different kind of stages in the book, but I think the best way, um, you know, it really is in keeping with what you've um, already hinted at. The best way to read it is to understand this document as a as a letter that was sent to actual people, actual. You know, Christian believers living in these named churches that are all mentioned in chapter one, and then again in chapter two and three. Um, and the first three chapters are introductions to the main substance, which is going to be it's going to start from chapter four onwards. 
Um, so unfortunately, if you do just read, you know, the first four chapters or so on, you you you're just in the intro, and it's a really important intro, and it sets us up for the rest of the book. But you haven't read the book yet, and there's a kind of tragedy in it, I suppose, because it's in chapter six where the central object of the sealed of the scroll, which is sealed, begins to be opened. So if you never get beyond that, it's like, well, the book remains a sealed book for you. And for many people, that's kind of what they're stuck with. They're stuck with this sense of this inscrutable, inaccessible, closed document. But you have to press through to get to the open book, which is, you know, comes later on. So um, it is true that there's a there's a nice setup for us in chapters two and three in particular with the seven messages and so on. Um, but can we now? I want to go now to something else because I was asking about your art and relationship mm -hmm. of your art to theology mm -hmm. and you're beginning to to talk about that we're dealing with writing that is that's metaphor and all the rest mm -hmm. and i had i've had your colleague uh, dr ian proven on uh, on this mm -hmm. podcast a couple of times and as you know one of his main things and it's something that resonates with my heart is the art of biblical narrative mm -hmm. um but i have a, a sense for a lot of people a lot of people get edgy mm -hmm. when we start to talk about uh, the lit the literary aspects mm -hmm. of Bible and 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 why that's important, uh, but it's, though it's pretty clear the Bible is written in a, in a narrative structure primarily, and God used human authors through mm -hmm. which to reveal Himself, and that's why yeah. the the books of the Bible are so different from one another. Mm -hmm. um, even Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are so similar, mm -hmm. have all have differences because of their of the human authorship, um, but. When dealing with the book of Revelation, which John tells us it's a vision, didn't God simply show him this thing and he wrote it down? What, mm -hmm. Like, why do we even have to care about uh, the metaphor, the poetical aspects and all the rest? Didn't God just download this book to John? Well, maybe that pushback to that is to say, well, even if God did, is God not capable of speaking in metaphor and creatively and using poetical language? Um, so well, the right answer is yes. But where do we go <laughs> from there? So I think you know what we can see by studying the the book itself is to see that it is clearly written in a carefully constructed and artistic way, and then that shouldn't be seen as sort of a as a as a a challenge to the books. Uh, inspiration or its or divine authority or anything like that. I mean, what we believe with scripture is that God has given us these beautiful written texts, but they're written texts and they're, they're in human language and language comes from culture, language comes from human experience. And, um, you know, we encounter this through the tools of, first of all, learning language, uh, learning communication among different people. And of course, we have the, the whole issue of needing to translate these, these books from one language to another language and so on. So you've got that layer of, of learning and engagement that has to take place. Um, but the more you read a beautiful book like Revelation and you see the complexity of it, the many facets to it, the way it weaves in um, all the threads, the way I think of it as a tapestry that weaves all of these different threads from the Old Testament, from the story of God's people and God's dealings with Israel and the nations and so on, and it's woven together to this beautiful work of art. Um, none of that takes away from the authority of the book or from its um, from its you know its divine um, origin as a word, its inspiration or anything like that. But it speaks to the fact that God um, has spoken through human authors and through human culture and through human language, and that speaks to us both of God's revelation. But also the ways in which, you know, we always have the limitations of our own capacity to receive anything from God. We receive what we're able to, what God gives us in language, in words, and not just propositional words, just, you know, facts. God to say, well, this fact and this fact and this fact. But God is drawing us into a much deeper understanding, a deeper evocation of God's own beauty, God important things about God, like the wrath of God, God's commitment to overcoming the forces of evil in the world, um, God's um, intention and the sureness of God's intention to reestablish uh, God's kingdom in the world and for justice to be done and all of these kinds of things. But 
doing it in this incredibly beautiful, sometimes overwhelming, sometimes shocking and even grotesque way. Like there's all kinds of emotions and, and well, there's scenes in the book of Revelation that, that just evoke, you know, sh shock and horror. Um, so all of that comes into play. Um, and clearly it's being done in language that is meant to um, provoke our imagination, kind of inspire us to think about things. It's in language that um, is clearly poetical. Um, and, and, you know, I can give some straightforward examples of that. Like, for yeah, example... Before, uh, before you get into that, mm -hmm. just, um, so how common was this kind of literature in Paul's, in Paul, sorry, Paul's day too, in, in, in John's day, mm -hmm. um, uh, we hear this term ap apocalyptic literature, mm -hmm. and there are some examples in other parts of the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, but for us, this is not normal, a, a mm -hmm. normal style of writing. How normal would it have been uh, to John and to his readers in his day? Do we, do we know? Yes, we do know this was quite a common way of writing for certain, you know, kind of segments of the um, Jewish community in um, in first century times. You could say it goes back to at least the book of Daniel, um, probably written in the second century BC, but you could even go back before that to the book of Ezekiel and so on, the prophetic text where you've got accounts of visionary experiences, in some cases accounts of um Sort of and encounters with angelic figures, celestial figures, sometimes um, books that speak of the prophet or the seer being caught up into the unseen world, into the heavenly realm, and so on. So, in addition to books that we might know of from the Bible, say the book of Daniel, where you know he sees pictures of like you know creatures coming up from the sea, and those creatures we are told represent kingdoms and so on, which is very similar to the book of Revelation or the book of Ezekiel, a figure on a throne, an overwhelmingly glorious and amazing figure who has a scroll in his hand. He gives it to the prophet and he eats it, which all plays out in the book of Revelation as well. But you've got the uh, other Jewish texts that were written in the in the kind of style of those books. You could say you've got the, the book books of Enoch, you've got books about Abraham, you've got books written by um, you know, someone who calls himself Baruch, who was the um, the scribe of Jeremiah. Um, and these books were often written, you know, not literally by Enoch and Baruch, but by someone writing as if they are that person speaking about kind of voyages into the heavenly realm and being shown things. Um, very important book that's, that's connected or ascribed to Ezra. Um, and so on. So there are lots of books like that. And we know they were widely read by Christians as well as Jews at the time. And they shape the language that's used and uh, the speech, the kind of the discussion that's used for talking about the unseen world, uh, for speaking about um, kind of cosmic forces, God's purposes that are going on kind of in the meta historical sphere, you could say. So when things are going on in the, in, in the earthly sphere, there's this understanding that they are somehow being affected by, even maybe guided by, events that are happening in kind of a, an unseen heavenly realm, which speaks to a kind of a, a understanding of the cosmos. So think about the world, not as you know we think of as this kind of vast, unbounded kind of space, but really a kind of multi-tiered, vertical uh, world in which you've got uh, human history happening at one sphere, but there are layers of heavenly realms above that that is populated by all kinds of heavenly um, and celestial beings, and with God at the very highest inaccessible level. But all of God's created order is kind of underneath the that realm, all the way down to earth, and then there's even under the earth. So you can think of Philippians chapter two, which talks about every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord in heaven, on earth and on and under the earth. It's not talking about, you know, going down a mine and finding, you know, someone who lives there. But it's this 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 imagined cosmic world where there's these multiple kind of spheres of reality. And uh, that's the world that Revelation is depicting for us. There are um, forces at play in all of these realms and they have an impact on what is going on in human history. 
So how do how do we know? I don't know if you can answer this. When we get references to things like the stars falling out of the sky and the moon turning to blood, um, and we know there's you know there's these these blood moon type phenomenon mm -hmm. we you know, where the mm -hmm. uh, the moon turns red and and it could be a reference to that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, though some of those references and I don't have the the verses offhand. It, Jesus uses mm -hmm. them yeah. um, <clears throat> as well as what we see in the Book of Revelation. How do is all of that figurative? Yes. But, how I mean, could you be? But how could you be sure? Because it's the it's the um, it fits the um, the the world of um, prophetic um, language in the Old Testament. Um, I mean, take for example, uh, on the day of Pentecost. Peter quotes from the book of Joel, and there you've got a reference to the moon turning to blood and so on. And then he says, that happened today, right here. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of that. Um, and so it's not, it's, it's not that there aren't phenomena that happen in our world. And in the ancient world, if they saw the moon turning red, or if they saw an eclipse, or if there was um, a volcano and so on, that made them think about the unseen world and they imagined that this was something celestial happening and so on. So there is a connection. The human imagination is sparked by things that we actually encounter and experience and reflect on. Um, but then that language is used to speak of things that are in the, in the unseen world. So you've got lots of examples of the book of Revelation drawing on mythological language, drawing on the language of even Mesopotamian stories, Canaanite mythology, the idea of a dragon in the sea, Leviathan with seven heads goes back to a Canaanite mythological creature. Um, the Mesopotamian creation myths talk about uh, how Marduk, you know, defeated the, the dragon of chaos and the waters and so on. And then the psalmist um, and the book of Job as well used that kind of language to talk about how God created the world and quelled chaos and caused uh, order to come out of what was previously disorder. Um, so there's just so many examples of it all the way through the Bible. Bible, and um, think about the ways that God is described as riding on the wings of the wind and of having a chariot in the sky. And I mean, I think. You could try to read all of that literally, but eventually, I think it just falls apart. Like, and then there's, a, there's something I want to there's something I want to throw in here because I, um, I could feel for some people that start to to get unsettled when we talk about the figurative nature of some of these things. Mm -hmm. I think I'm glad you brought up you know God riding a chariot, mm -hmm. um, and some especially we see some of that in the Psalms. People feel a little more comfortable. The Psalms are, are poems or songs. Yes. We use mm -hmm. figurative language. But here's one of the things that that I, I want to encourage people to think about, and let me know what you think. When we talk about these kinds of metaphors, figures of speech, this doesn't lessen mm -hmm. the power of the and the meaning of the message. You know, if, mm -hmm. whether or not there's a real Leviathan that God ever uh overcame or leviathan is uh, a symbol of of chaos mm -hmm. god still overcomes chaos mm -hmm. however that's expressed and, and so whether or not there ever existed such a sea creature um and maybe it maybe it did but maybe it didn't because the the point is what is god actually saying to us and so as we go further into some of the details in the book of Revelation in particular, I don't want people to think that to say that that the book is full of symbols, of symbolic meaning, that meaning is more powerful than what a lot of people might presuppose when they try to take some of those symbols literally. Yeah. So these destructive agents in the book of Revelation, when we say they might be... A, a symbol of something, that which it's a symbol of is highly destructive and we should mm -hmm. we should get our act together so that we respond to what God really yeah. wants. I've, I've rambled a bit, but does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's very helpful and that's, that's how I would think of it as well. It's not in any way to diminish the, um, the punch or the, the, the hard-hittingness of the book, anything like that. The metaphor, metaphorical language, um, if anything, deepens and um, makes even more 
impactful than what we're talking about in Revelation. I mean, let me just use one example, Alan. When the book of Revelation talks about how John, when he comes into the throne room of God and uh, he encounters someone who um, looks like, well, someone who is a lamb and this lamb has got seven eyes. And um, we know when we read the book of Revelation that that's Jesus. Now, but John is describing a vision. He's not describing heaven. It's not people think, oh, he went into heaven. No, he, he did. He was caught up in an experience in the spirit. And he was given a vision of things. And in this vision, there is a lamb. There's an actual lamb in his visions. When you're thinking about Revelation, leave it as a lamb. Don't just think, oh, it's Jesus. You know, he's wearing a white robe and, um, you know, he's got a beard or something like that. No, he sees an actual lamb. And this lamb has got seven eyes. So let the strangeness of that, that hmm, I didn't expect that, seven eyes. Like, are they in a row? Like, are they all over the head? Like, what does it mean that there's seven eyes? And let that stay with you. Don't just say, oh, it's Jesus. He's being called a lamb because we know that. No, he's not. He's, there's a lamb there. <laughs> and um, he remains. But then in other scenes, you've got other depictions of Jesus. So in chapter 19, we have a rider on a white horse. It's like, okay, now there's a different picture. The image has shifted. This also is Jesus. This also refers to Jesus as pointing to Jesus. It's not like, you know, now the the pretend lamb took off the lambskin and there was a man who got on a horse. No, it's a different image, a different picture. And it's hard for us sometimes to relate these images to each other. It's like a hologram that shifts. In another place, there is a child who gets born to the woman in chapter 12. That newborn child, well, that's Jesus too. <laughs> um, and so on. Um, so we... That, that image of Jesus being a lamb, we're comfortable with that because we're, we always think, well, Jesus is the lamb of God. Great. But in Revelation, there's an actual lamb there, but it's a surprising lamb because it has seven eyes. In fact, we're told that he's standing as if he's being slain. That's a perplexing statement too. How does one stand as if one's being slain? It's not. So there's lots of ways in which the, the pictures are, they kind of draw us in and then there's something odd about them that keeps us kind of wondering, well, what does it really mean? What's it? speaking to and so on even something as simple as god on a throne you know you have to ask yourself you know does god actually sit on a throne is god have a body does god you know but right. that's that is itself is is a kind of god speaking to us in a way that we can understand but we know from other parts of the bible that god is spirit god doesn't have a body that god doesn't sit on a chair so you know just it draws us deeper and deeper into the mystery once we start re realizing yeah. Um, what the language is doing. So let's jump from that, and we'll go big, and then may, and then we'll get to some details, uh, God willing. So, what is the Book of Revelation all about? What's it for? Start with all about first. Yeah. Well, Revelation is an invitation for us to worship the one who sits on the throne, and that scene that encounters John when he comes into the into chapter four, and he encounters there is one who sits on the throne and is surrounded by this perpetual worship of all those creatures, the living creatures, uh, the, the 24 elders, um, and all of the multitude that we, as, as we go into chapter five, you suddenly, the, it's like the, the camera pans back and you suddenly see there's this multitudes upon multitudes that worship the one who is on the throne. And Revelation is all about drawing us into that company to say, worship God, worship the one who's on the throne. But we also learn that the worship of God is contested, that there is one that seeks to draw away worship, seeks to undermine the worship of God, and seeks to kind of take the world away from God. That's the seven-headed dragon that we're introduced to. God has an agent in the world, God's agent in the world, who is going to enact God's purposes and bring about God's will, as it were. That is the lamb who's introduced to us in chapter five. And the lamb's the one who sets in motion, in motion God's purposes for the world. That's what happens with the opening of this of the scroll and that unfolds in many ways. But I'll counter to that, there is this dragon who has an agent, has multiple agents in the world. There is the, the dragon has a beast and then there's another beast. And in the historical sphere, the agents of God and the agents of the dragon are at war with each other. And we are those who ne we need to decide who are we going to follow? Do we follow the one? Do we follow the lamb wherever he goes, which is one of the phrases that's used or 
Another phrase is, do we wash our robes and make them white in the blood of the lamb so that we can ultimately stand in the presence of God and be among those who are waving palm branches, who are being brought into God's unmediated presence, who have their tears wiped away and uh, become a part of God's community in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, that's, that's the invitation is to follow the lamb and to worship God. But it's also, there's a warning in, in, in all of this because to worship God is to be caught up in a, co a, a, a conflict, that there is this conflict uh, between God and the dragon. And we'll get, and, and let's, and I'd like to get yeah. into that, but you, you refer to, the, so the, the book of Revelation says this, so that we, was the book of Revelation written to us? Who's, mm -hmm. who's the book for? Well, yes, it's written to God's, for God's people. So, but, you know, if you look at the very first verse of the book of Revelation, it talks about how it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant, John. And it was made known by, you know, God sent his angel to John and John then gives this message to the seven churches. So there are seven churches, which are real live historical communities in, in the province of Asia and um, in Western Turkey, as we would think of it today. Those churches are, um, you know, it's like um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Is, Paul, is Paul's letter to the Corinthians only for the Corinthians? Or is it also for all those who will eventually read the book of First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, and so on, can come to understand that through them, Scripture comes to us as well, that God's Spirit wrote it for those people and those times and those communities, but it was always intended to be for a wider audience. And the early Christians knew that, and they demonstrated that they knew that by copying these letters, by circulating them, by sending them to places other than to Corinth and to, you know, and to Rome and to Ephesus and so on. Um, there was a sense in which what was written for them was, was written, it was kind of connected to them. It's a letter rooted in their circumstances and their reality, but that the meaning and the significance overflowed that particular context. Um, and was going to be for all believers, all Christians for all time. Um, I can see how many people think that will agree with you with regard mm -hmm. to much of the Bible, but it seems a lot of people uh, consider the book of Revelation like the last chapter of God's story. This is the big mm -hmm. wrap up. Yeah. Um, and okay, so there's these seven churches and they were getting this message for some reason, maybe they because they were going to preserve it for that last generation mm -hmm. that needs to know the, the details of the book. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not too sure what to do with the centuries of believers in between, uh, yeah. but mm -hmm. a lot of people and in, in, ever since I've been a believer, there has been a lot of those of the those who are excited about the book of Revelation, those who who are passionate for it, see mm -hmm. it as a futuristic predictive thing for some final generation. Yeah. Um, I take it that you probably don't see it that way. Well, it certainly is for the final generation, but it's also for all the other generations um, in between. And it's not just for each generation to think they're the final generation and then they die and it's like, oh, okay, it wasn't them. Then the next generation thinks they're the final generation and it's not. I mean, then it's kind of like just a whole sequence of people being mistakenly thinking it was for them. And that, you know, you could take it that way. I mean, ultimately you, you have to, um, you have to decide how, you know, what is most, um, you know, most in keeping with how we understand God to be speaking to us in scripture. Um, and so revelation is about the future, but it's about much, it's not just about the future. It's about things that have already happened and that have always happened. Um, and I mean, I could show you what I mean by that in that I understand chapter five for example where the where the lamb opens the scroll first of all we have to there's this announcement that no one is worthy to open the scroll and then you know so john weeps he's he's sad no one is worthy to open the scroll but then this wonderful turnaround moment it's like don't worry there is someone who can open the scroll so then and he he can open the scroll because he is worthy and he is worthy because he's a ransom for god people from every tribe and language and people and nation so the lamb has done something that qualifies him open the scroll. The thing that, that the lamb has accomplished is to die on the cross and to, and to rise from the dead. And so that scene in which the lamb comes into the throne of God, the throne room of God, is in effect the moment at which Christ returns to heaven on ascension day. 
he has come victorious from having been crucified. He has ransomed for God with his own blood, people from every tribe and language and nation. And now he comes in order to set in motion God's purposes for the coming of God's kingdom in the world. And so, in effect, ever since Ascension Day, Jesus has been in the process of of enacting God's purposes for the world. That began to happen on that day, and it continues and will continue to go till it ends at at the end of time when the rider on the white horse eventually comes. There's no hiatus. There's no like long, you know, 2000 year period in which the lamb sort of takes a break. The, the lamb is at work. God is at work. Christ is at work. And it's been going on from that moment till now. And well, I think oh, that's I, I love that 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 preaches that that mm-hmm. that's great. But, you know, as I said, I read through the book last night. Mm-hmm. I hadn't done mm-hmm. it in a while. It's horrible. The once you get past those first chapters, it is so absolutely horrible Mm -hmm. and if the book is for subsequent generations all the generations till today then um either the book is overstating the horrors of of human history since the lord has been around or we have missed something which or is there something in between I'll, i'll let you know where 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 i've been going with this What's been going on? Like, what is this world into which the gospel has been spreading? Like, you know, people tend to think, you know, the world's gotten better and better in some ways, or it maybe goes up and down. Like, but the book of Revelation paints a horrible picture. But think about what, the, say, the four uh, horses of the apocalypse in chapter six show us is that, um, in, and the, these are this, this echoes the words of Jesus himself in, the, in Mark chapter 13 and, and, um, and so on, the, the, the little apocalypse from the Gospels, that there will be war, there'll be rumors of war, there will be death and famine. Um, and these, these are the um, experiences of, of human history down through the centuries. But remember also that this is, so always remember where John is taking us into a vision. And in the vision, a story is unfolding. And it's really important. I think it's just a very key sort of interpretive um, kind of ways. it's the key to the thing to understand that there's a story that is unfolding and that story has got a pattern. It's a pattern that we find in the Bible. It's really the pattern of the Exodus. And so we need to see that the story of the book of Exodus is the story that shapes what's happening in the book of Revelation. So if you go back to the story of Exodus, you find that the, the people that God wants to redeem and to draw to himself are enslaved in Egypt, which is referenced in Revelation as well as kind of the, the land of the, you know, of sort of darkness and of enslavement and so on. That people are rescued by the blood of a slaughtered lamb. And having been rescued, they are drawn by God into the wilderness in order to enter into covenant relationship with God. And they are marked by God. They are connected to God in covenant. And then from there, they continue on through a long period of wilderness wanderings until they ultimately come to the land of promise, which God has prepared for them. Mount Zion, the, you know, the, the, the promised land and so on. And Revelation, and um, in order to, uh, to leave the land of, um, of slavery, God pours out plagues and judgments on the evil empire, you could say. And so not only is there the death of the slaughtered lamb, but there's the judgment of the forces of evil in the world. And those judgments are echoed and kind of replayed all the way through the book of Revelation, not in a not in a sort of a straightforward wooden way, but by constant illusion and kind of echoes. So you've got echoes of water turning to blood. You've got echoes of darkness. You've got echoes of boils and plagues and all of these kinds of things. And then kind of woven into that are other judgment passages that we come from the book of, you know, the books of um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. The judgment of the nations are woven in. You've got the overthrow of a great mountain. You've got stars that are falling into the water. You've got the water being turned into something undrinkable and so on. And it all fits into this pattern of how God is judging the the forces of evil in the world in order to draw his own people to himself 
to enter into covenant relationship with them and to be with them as they cross the wilderness. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, when the people of God crossed the, the wilderness, this is a time of, on the one hand, privation and difficulty. It's a time of hardship, but it's also the time in which the people are nourished by manna from heaven. They are um, watered with water from the rock, which Paul tells us was Christ following them through the wilderness. Um, and they encounter enemies, and there's the possibility of mutiny, and there are people who want to go back to where they came from. But the faithful endure, and Revelation says, this is a call to the people of God. This calls for endurance. So Revelation is a deeply sobering and serious book because it tells us that those who are in relationship with God, who in fact are following the Lamb wherever he goes, he goes through the wilderness in order to come ultimately into the land of promise, that this is an experience that requires endurance. It's, a, an, ex, it's an experience that requires faithfulness. And it calls on us to be together the people of God. Um, Revelation refers to it as the great tribulation or the great ordeal that we go through in order ultimately to come to God. But the going through is, um, it's not a life of ease or of um, kind of safety. It's, it's a life of being preserved by God through hardship uh, in but order to come ultimately so, into God's so, presence. So here's what I think is, is the, the, an interpretive filter, the mm -hmm. obstacle that I think is, is causing us a lot of trouble. And maybe people are, in my, including myself, are waking up to, to what's been really going on. Mm -hmm. And that is, I don't think in the history of the world we've ever seen so many people for such a length of time living in comfort and ease as mm. we have for the past several <laughs> decades. And you start to think about it, well, like going how far back? Well, I was, you know, I was born in 57, Second World War is already over, but my people, Jewish people, we lost 6 million, mm. um, 11 million people killed in World War II. And that wasn't the war they call, originally called the Great War. Mm -hmm. And that's not the 50 million people under under communist uh, a rule that were slaughtered um and yet which is i'm, I'm almost going to contradict myself because i'm wondering if mm -hmm. the world that we've been in the past several decades has been as nice mm -hmm. as we've tended to think like we are so we're we've never been more entertained we've mm -hmm. never been more climate controlled with central mm -hmm. heating with Air, central air conditioning. Um, I'd like to talk to my kids about how uh, cars, cars didn't have mm. air conditioning. We had better vents. Mm. So you did get more airflow and you don't have that anymore in cars. Um, and so if your air conditioning breaks, it's, it's you know, you're in the great tribulation. Um, it's, I think something's happened to us mm. that's given an impression of human life that mm -hmm. isn't accurate. So and I just want to say one more thing ab about mm. this time of comfort and ease that we've known in a certain part of the world for the past few decades, I wonder if we've really been in touch because 150,000 babies are slaughtered in their mother's womb in Canada alone every year. And it's about 10 times that amount in the United States. That's not the rest of the world. And yet we think that we are in luxury and comfort and then we could start listing some of the other things that have gone on and how the powers that be have actually oppressed um, mm -hmm. the truth. Like, I, like mm -hmm. I haven't really cared about how government removed prayer from school, so to speak. I remember um, growing up in public school in Montreal, we had the, the Lord's Prayer and Bible stories. Um, and then that changed. It kind of changed overnight and i know people they 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 um they mourn over that i think i'm understanding a little better because i think that's been part of a general social experiment in mm. the secularization of society that has actually led to more and more levels of oppression mm -hmm. um and then and even if where we've had it good if we actually did a survey of the entire globe people are still starving and and dying from unnecessary illness and wars and and the world's been a terrible place ever since the fall mm -hmm. so then it begs the question what difference does jesus actually make mm -hmm. to 
this battle that we've been in since the beginning. You've already alluded to some of that, but maybe maybe yeah. I've just maybe I've, I've just lobball you uh, this this pitch here. What if the world isn't as wonderful as some people think it is, and it's actually mm -hmm. far more sin sick and troubled than we've um, allowed ourselves to believe, mm -hmm. what difference does Jesus actually make? And does the book of Revelation, by any chance, help us understand that? Well, absolutely. I think that there's no doubt that Revelation is a wake-up call. And if you just think about the um, the opening you know, couple of chapters where we talked about how this, you've got the seven churches, those different churches have all got a different experience. Some of them are doing quite well. Some of them are being persecuted. Some of them are quite smug and settled. So Laodicea is a church that is a bit like what you describe as kind of the Western experience. It's like, hey, everything's all right. We're doing quite wealthy. We, you know, disease is kind of more or less under control. We can get medicine for things. Uh, we can turn on the air conditioning. But Christ says to them, you're poor, wretched, blind, and naked, and you need to know um, that things are worse than you think. But for others, they, they don't need that message. They need a message of encouragement and of, of uplifting and so on. So it we, we read Revelation very much from the vantage point of our experience. And some people will read Revelation as an encouraging message, and other people will read it as a really, ought to read it as a message of warning. But in terms of the difference that Jesus makes, this is clearly laid out for us in two key parts of Revelation. One is in chapter 7, and the other one's in chapter 11. In both of those places, which break the sequence that we've just been in those sections of being told, once the, the sequence of seal openings, the other one is the sequence of trumpet blasts, there's this pause to focus on the people of God. And um, in both cases, we're given insight into what it means to, to the difference that the followers of Jesus make, the followers of the Lamb. And ultimately, to be a follower of the Lamb is to align with Jesus to be those who follow him wherever he goes. And in chapter 11, which is an absolutely key part of the book of Revelation, we've got these two witnesses who are also a picture of the people of God. The two witnesses are those who by their life and their message call the world to repentance, like Moses and Elijah did. And that's the difference that the church is called to make. The church is called to be the presence of Jesus in the world. It, many times in Revelation, those who follow the Lamb are called those who hold the testimony of Jesus. They don't just um, they don't just say, you know, I believe in Jesus or you should believe in Jesus. They continue Jesus' own message in the world, Jesus' message about the kingdom of God. The fact that there is a kingdom of God, that there is one who is on the throne, who is Christ. And they live that message and they they take the um they take the consequences of being like Jesus in the world, um, just like Jesus did, who stood before Pontius Pilate and said what was truth about God. He bore true testimony to the fact of God. And that's what the, the people of God do ongoingly. But what Revelation says to us is that, that the, the agent of the dragon in the world will make war on them and will defeat them. So this is one of the really challenging things about the book of Revelation. If you read chapter 13, the beast that comes up from the sea makes war on the people of God and defeats them. And the other pictures that we have of God's people, like, for example, in chapter 7, where the people of God are given a white robe to wear. The white robe is a symbol of martyrdom. Revelation is a call to join with that great company of martyrs down through the centuries who have paid the price with their life. This is the disconnect for us, as you've said, Alan, because we don't feel like we're about to get martyred. You know, we, we live in liberal democracies where we've got rights and we've got protections and so on. And so in many ways, it's hard for us who live in peaceful, prosperous Western economies to really relate to a book that speaks about the, how the people of God are martyrs. Everyone in Revelation dies for their faith. There's no one who doesn't. There's no, there's no follower of the Lamb in the, in the book of Revelation who isn't a martyr. So we're being called to contemplate this, this fact. What does it mean to be so aligned with Jesus that we don't just believe things about him, but find his life being enacted in us? 
And we find that we also are being called into this conflict that characterized Jesus' own life. And, I th- um, I, and that's the thing I think a lot of people are missing is that when we come to the Lord, I shared with you a little bit of my testimony and, and mm-hmm. people could look that up if they want to. And I went from a miserable existence as a teenager and then I became alive and I, I'd actually been told that I'd be happy for the rest of my life. And I actually believed that, especially with my initial cloud nine experiences, as, as mm-hmm. I call it. And mm-hmm. the, the aspect that I didn't fully understand, even though as a Jewish believer, I was thrown into the conflict almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is, um, I love the way you pointed out how there's this um, hearkening back to the Exodus mm-hmm. and so on. Like, so there were the people of Israel in bondage to slavery, mm-hmm. suffering, but I guess you could say kind of peaceful. They, they knew what they were going to do when they got up in the morning. Mm-hmm. It, when they went to bed was determined by someone else. They didn't have choices. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to make decisions. They didn't have to deal with the economy and, mm-hmm. and all the normal kind of day-to-day stuff that we take for granted. Um, but they were miserable. And so then God, how does he get them out of their misery? Well, he smashes Egypt with these horrific plagues. That's not nice. And I know people of Israel were protected from several of them, but this stuff's happening all around them. It's not nice. Then they get delivered and they face conflict after conflict after conflict. So they were taken from this kind of very passive existence in their bondage and called into a very active Hmm. conflict. And that continued through the wilderness. It continued in the conquering of the the Hmm. promised land. And if they didn't stay... um, uh, I can't think of the word. They didn't like keep on the ball. They would mm. get sucked in into the evil of the surrounding yeah. nations, right? So they had to keep active with the conflict. Yeah. And you know how many of us have shared the good news of the Messiah with people by saying, "Hey, want to come and join the conflict?" Because yeah. actually, it's a battle cry. Yeah. It, now it comes with benefits both in this life and in what the Bible calls the age to come. And we, as Paul says, we can't compare mm-hmm. uh, what's going to happen with, you know, to, to the stuff that we go through now. Um, but as part of all those benefits, we're called into this great battle. Yeah. And, and there is a, so I, so I wonder if, if, if it's been easy for us, go to work, family, mm-hmm whatever. I know everyone's struggling because of the whole COVID thing, and which also increases people's interest in the book of Revelation. I don't think Mm -hmm. that's all bad. Uh, But I wonder if we're starting to see the true nature of the world that we're living in and the kind of conflict that we have to face in order to represent the interests of the Messiah better. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, ways in which modern life is easier than previous generations and so on. But each generation has its own specific issues to face. I mean, we deal with public, uh, with uh, mental health issues. We deal with, um, you know, all kinds of anxieties and, and you know, in ways that previous generations didn't have to. So, you know, I wouldn't want to belittle our experience of suffering. You know, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, they, it's, it's possible for us easily to be lulled, you know, like I think, and that's always been that kind of the human desire. We'd rather be lulled, but we've also, you know, we, we so the prophets of the, of the Hebrew Bible are, are waking the community up. Hey, you, this, this must stop. This is wrong. Hey, there's danger coming. Don't be sucked into that way of thinking. Um, don't kid yourself, you know, and that's, that's the ongoing place of the book of Revelation is um, not to just desire um, the kind, like the one of the things that happened in the wilderness wanderings was that some people said mm, it was better back in Egypt. Let's go. They had leeks and onions by the Nile, you know, like um, you know hummus and you know falafel or whatever they were they were having. Um, but it was like, no, you don't give up. Keep pressing ahead. Um, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Stay with your community. Stay with the people of God. This is this is the long haul. But Revelation is also a message of hope. So there are these wonderful depictions of God with his people in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. So we are um, assured of, the, of, of God's intention to uh, vindicate justice, to bring about you know, the proper resolution of all things. So we can believe in that and trust in that. It's not like we have to think, oh, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. 
But in terms of the detailed outworking of God's purposes, these things are given to us in these large sort of thematic ways, not in kind of detailed exposition of a sequence of events that's going to unfold in the Middle East or with China or with you know Russia invading some something. But on the other hand, all of the conflicts that we do in fact see, um, they are examples of the ongoing um, ways in which our world is in turmoil, how we have constant battles that we have to negotiate and deal with. And in the midst of that, keep seeking always, what does it mean to be faithful to the Lamb today? What does it mean to not lose our way now? And so it's, you know, over and over again, the book of Revelation says, let the one who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So we've always been called to be attentive, to be aware, listen, keep your eyes open, be engaged, don't get smug and don't get complacent. Uh, because that's when you slip into the kinds of condemnation that you see there for the church in Laodicea or whatever, where there's this warning, like, well, you, you think you're great, but you may not, may in fact not be. Yeah, so we've we've basically used our time, and I had planned to ask you some uh, some what your view on is what your views are on particular, very call them popular details in the Book of Revelation. But for the sake of time, let me ask one: mm -hmm. What's the mark of the beast? The mark of the beast is the counterpoint to the mark of God in chapter seven. In chapter seven, those who belong to God are sealed with the mark of the living God. Right? And we find out later on in the book of Revelation, in chapter 14, that the seal of God is the name of God and of the Lamb that is on the forehead of the people of God. It's the name of God. And then in chapter 13, it's the name of the dragon's agent in the world. So in the vision of Revelation, everyone has a name on them. Even the great prostitute has got a name on it. Right, So it's one of the the kind of the, the ways that Revelation differentiates who belongs to whom. Everyone's got a name written on that. Now, Revelation uses an ancient uh, practice uh, called gematria, which is based on the fact that letters in both the Hebrew and the Greek alphabet have got all got numerical value. They didn't have a separate system of symbols for numbers. They used Aleph as counted as one, bet is two, gimel, dalet, hey, these are the numbers that they use, the same with Greek, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and so on, these are numbers. So every time you write a word, you're in fact also writing a number or any word or sentence has got a numerical value. And so it's a way of kind of communicating in a sort of insider way, because you know once you write a, once you've got a big numerical value, it's like, it's very hard to calculate, okay, what do the letters, you know, what, which letters add up to 666? But there's so many clues in the book of Revelation that the beast that comes up from the sea is, in fact, a reference to the Roman Empire in the first century. There's so many clues already that you can, if you start looking in that direction, scholars, you know, before too long, notice that Nero Caesar, written in Hebrew characters, adds up to 666. And that fits so many other aspects of what Revelation is telling to those churches, is that it's warning them not to be sucked into the power system of the day, sucked into the social order of the day, the economic system, the religious system. Rome presented itself as the savior of the world. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was really a form of oppression. It was based on military power. It was based on economic exploitation of the nations. And Revelation is warning people then, as it does to us today, don't think that it's okay to just go along with the world. Don't think you can just go along with political structures and social structures and, you know, and that it's all going to be all right. In fact, Revelation saying it's tantamount to being marked with the values and the interests of the dragon's power in the world. So okay, just really to, so to be clear, to, so mm -hmm. uh, the, the mark, you're either marked by God or you mm -hmm. have the mark of the beast, and, and mm -hmm. these have to do with associations, personal associations mm -hmm. with those entities and what they represent. Mm -hmm. um, now, it's there's a warning to believers mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. to take the mark of the beast. So yeah. there isn't this idea that if you have the mark of God, you're good to go, nothing to worry about. There's a mm -hmm. real warning there. Yeah. And so whatever we think the mark of the beast is, the idea mm -hmm. that we need to be careful not to take the mark of the beast. Yeah. Now you've explained it as certain values. Can we like 
But what does that actually mean? Does it mean yeah. you can't work for the Roman government? Does it mean uh, don't go to the Roman temple? Does it, what, what does, don't watch Roman TV? Like, Gladiator shows, yeah. Is, 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 so it, was that a message that going to see the gladiators was a no-no? It was all of those things, Alan. So, and it's those questions that you were asking are exactly the questions. That's where you're at with this book. It's in the vision of Revelation. There are this this clear demarcation. These belong to the Lamb. These are people who belong to the beast in the world. Now we have to reflect. What does it mean for us to be those who are marked by the Lamb and have the Lamb's name on us? If you read Paul, Paul says. In Ephesians, for example, that we are sealed with the seal of the Holy Spirit. That would be another way of thinking about, well, those who have come to faith in Christ have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans that we have been given the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized into Jesus. We've been raised to a new kind of life. These are the mark of God, the seal of God on us. Revelation is depicting that in this graphic pictorial way. We've been marked with the name of Jesus and of the Father on us. Over against that, those who don't belong to the Lamb, those who belong to the beast, have been marked with his name. Now, think about it for life in the world, for us. I don't see, I'm looking at you carefully here, I don't see the name of Jesus stamped on your forehead. But I know by your life and by your story and by your spirit, I know that you belong to Jesus. You are his and you have his name on you and on your life. And we, we have, and I, that's true of me too. I have his, I have Jesus name on me. Um, but as you rightly say, we need, need to make sure that we don't by our life, by our choices, by our complacency, just act as if we belong to someone else. As if we have the mark of the beast on us, as if we have, you know, by our, our choices, by our alignment, by, um, our loyalty. Revelation is a call to loyalty. It's a call to join the battle on the right side. But it doesn't, there isn't a kind of easy um, sort of solution to, well, what, it, what, what is this? Is that? Is this other thing? But this is why we live in community. This is why we live with discernment. We need to always be asking. That's why we need pastors. That's why we need spiritual guides. That's why we need to be talking to each other to say, well, can I work for the government? Well, let's think about that. You know, maybe you can, but maybe not. I mean, you need to think it through. Um, you know, can I be in the military? That, maybe you can, maybe right. you can't. But you need to think it through. Each of us needs to think it through carefully. And without the fear of thinking I'm inadvertently by mistake going to be marked with the right. mark of the beast. Yeah, you just made it, you just made the whole thing a lot more difficult because now we have to discern. And so because I, I was getting ready to say, oh, should we not be using Zoom and YouTube to do this? And and as I think your answer is now maybe maybe yes, maybe no. And I um there's I, there are so many issues and you know and we live in a we live in a in an information saturated busy kind of life just so so much and one of the things that concerns me is with the increase in polarization people aren't thinking they're just part of this group or that group and yeah. and we just go along and if yeah. anything the book of revelation is calling us to stop just going along we got to yeah. take life seriously and make sure that we don't take that mark of the beast like it'd be simple to find out that Oh, it's it's this. We shouldn't have social insurance or social security yeah. numbers mm -hmm. and have to get off the grid. It, I know that's not that easy, but that's still a mm -hmm. simple solution. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's likely far more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And it and I and I think you've given us a good uh, reminder to, to carefully look at where our allegiances are, mm -hmm. where are our dependencies. What yeah. are our values actually? It's not about having the right Bible translation and going mm -hmm. to the right kind of church and watching the right shows. It's it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. And it, it's one of the things that I've been seeing in the current polarization with what's been going on with COVID. Um, that we need to determine what truth really is. We need to do our homework and mm -hmm. not just go along. And so that we really are following the lamb where, wherever he goes. Uh, 
Paul, this has been great. We've just scratched the surface. Maybe we'll be able to come back another time and get into some more of those details. Um, where can people get your books? How should they uh, contact you if they want to reach out to you? Yes, you can get my book at um, you know any sort of online bookstore. You know, uh, <laughs> if that's not uh, any inappropriate. Uh, <laughs> to powers that be. Think but, it through, folks. Think it you through. You can get it from Amazon or, you know, the Region College Bookshore here in Vancouver is a good place for it. And, um, you know, people are welcome to email me. Um, actually, I think I'll give you uh, my, my personal email is pspillsbury22 at gmail.com. So that's uh, different than the one that I gave Alan earlier. But it's. Yeah, so I'll make sure that's in the description. Yeah, it's pspillsbury22 at gmail.com very good i do and i do want to plug if you are interested to know a little more actually the book's not very not very big it's designed to be a reader's guide to 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 give you what i think is very a very sound perspective on how to read the book of revelation we got a taste of that with with paul over the last hour um but I, i i do recommend this as a good start and what if you want to dig deeper he provides some additional readings so that you can get into some more detailed bigger books that are along this kind of perspective to the book of of revelation so thank you paul so much for uh, being with me today you're welcome it's been great enjoyed it very much alan well uh special thanks again to dr paul spillsbury um, I'll put his information in the description, as I said, along with his email address. And uh, if you have any questions for me, you could always contact me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Do comment and subscribe and all that, and look forward to seeing you all next time. So until then, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Thinking Biblically.